Hello, everybody, and welcome back. It is Monday, May 31st, 2021, and you are listening to episode 114 of the Can I Say Something podcast. I am your host and a reckless with a juicy caboose, Damien. Joining me today is myself, me, myself, and I. Today on the show, I will be discussing, with possible spoilers for everything involved, the Le Bureau finale, the Expanse books and television show, the Mitchells versus the Machine, and much, much more. Right into the show, bicycle at gmail.com, bicycle on Twitter, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, rate and review it on Apple Podcast. Tell a friend, family member, stranger. First up, we have the Bureau finale. Finally finished it. It's five seasons, 10 episodes apiece. It is now streaming currently on Sundance Plus or AMC Plus. Stars a bunch of French men and women, specifically Matthew Kesevitz, who plays Meltrol, Sarah Giradu, who plays Marina Lesso, Zineb Triki, who plays Nadia Almajour. Bunch of French people in the show, very French show. Very good show. Very, very good show. One of the best spy shows I've seen in a very long time. I'm a huge fan of the spy genre in particular. I love Tinker Taylor, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. I love all the John Le Carre novels. Somewhat of a fan of the James Bond franchise, even though that's much more of an action franchise than it is a spy genre film series. Um, but still enjoy enjoy those very much. Um, this concluded this past this past year in 2020. The, the last year, actually. Um, so it was very good. Um, the, the, the stuff that I enjoyed most was the spycraft, was the in-the-field stuff of people gathering sources, gathering information, pretending to be other people, the sort of triple, triple twists of this person is working for the GGSE, and they're also working for as a pretending to be a seismologist, for example, with the uh, Marina uh, storyline. She's a she was a seismologist who got employed by the DGSE, the French intelligence service. And then she goes to Iran to pretend to be a seismologist while she's actually gathering data on people down there. Um, it's a very very good show. It, it is a show about the interpersonal conflicts between the characters themselves while doing their work trying to care about the people they work with while not at the same time, while not simultaneously um, conflicting with their work, trying not to compromise any any of the missions they're on. So there's a lot of that going on in the show. Um, one thing I did not like about the show, there's sort, sort of two main factors of the show that you really have to enjoy uh, both equally to get the most out of the show. The first one I just talked about, which was the spycraft, the uh, workman life, workman life of a of a spy in modern day France, in modern in the modern day uh, world. Um, secondly, is the love story between Matthew Kasovitz and uh, Zineb Triki's character, the uh, Paul and Nadia storyline, their their love story. Um, it was brought to my attention recently by the the Watch podcast, one of the best podcasts I listened to recently with uh, Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald. They're also watching the show and also putting out podcasts about it, about their uh, reactions to it, their feelings about it. Um, and they were saying recently that the French have a, have a word, a term for basically crazy love. Admour fou, or also faux amorex, crazy in love, um, great uh, Beyonce song. But um, that's what the show is really uh, dealing with also is um, a, a very dedicated man dedicated to his craft dedicated to his his country and his um his job and his the people that he works with he's dedicated to them but also is fallen madly in love with paul has fallen madly in love with nadia and how he's dealing with that and how he is uh going well out of his way putting himself in in a lot of danger over and over again uh, putting himself, putting himself physically in risk, putting himself at risk for losing his job, putting a lot of his coworkers at risk as well, uh, forcing his coworkers to uh, put themselves in danger to rescue him multiple times throughout the series, uh, just to make sure that Nadia is safe. And I feel like generally, I didn't fully buy into their relationship because Nadia was either intentionally uh, written as a naive, 
um, oblivious, obtuse character, or that was done by accident. Either way, I feel like she has been, she was involved in very high level political meetings with the Syrian government. She's Syrian. Uh, he met her in Palestine. And she, throughout the series, she gets a bit more, she gets a little bit smarter, gets a bit more creative, gets a bit more um, cynical about the way the world works, gets a, get, uh, gets a bit more world-weary, starts to understand how things operate, except that she doesn't also at the same time. She's also very oblivious to what's going on around her, specifically a scene I talked about a few weeks ago, which was she's in an elevator being scanned up and down with a metal detector by one of Paul's coworkers before they have a meeting. And he is just, she, sorry, she is just oblivious to the fact that somebody is near her. Um, later on, she gets a little bit more um, acute awareness about her, about her uh, surroundings. Um, later on in season three and four, but um, the end of the series. Spoiler alert for the series: she is she is killed in cold blood, and shot in her car. Um, she has just come back from dropping Paul off, or seeing Paul dropping off his daughter, and she knows that she's still in a lot of danger. She's she's been involved in this very high stakes world of spy spy work. And she knows that people are out to get her and out to get Paul and out to get her daughter, his daughter. And a man just, she's at a stoplight, she's at a red light, just completely oblivious to the world around her. Guy just walks up to her behind her. She could be easily check her, her rear view mirror and know that he's there. But she gets, she just gets assassinated very easily. And uh, I feel like her being in this world for five years at least should give her some sort of better... Um, awareness, better uh, spatial awareness of, of, of danger around her. And she just didn't show any of that, uh, didn't show much um, improvement in that area uh, throughout the series. So that was a bit of a downer there. But uh, yeah, very, very, very good series overall. It is now streaming on Sundance Plus. Next up, we have The Expanse. I have been fully caught up to the books thus far. Uh, the last book I read was Book seven, book eight, actually, I finished book eight uh, fairly recently, TMS Wrath. Um, this is planned to be a nine book series with the uh, last book, Leviathan Falls, coming out this year, 2021, November 16th, 2021. So as of this recording, still have about five, six months to wait for that one. Uh, it is a very, very good series. One of the best uh, sci-fi, hard sci-fi series I've read in a very long time. Um, some people are asking me, what is what is hard sci-fi? What's the difference between hard sci-fi and you know soft sci-fi, I guess is what you would call it, what the other um, side of that would be. So hard sci-fi, if you've seen any movies like uh, The Martian or Interstellar, those are very good examples of hard sci-fi, which is you know, this ship has a drive that has fuel. It has all these things that are very uh, relatable and known to people, to, to people right now. It has, you know, things, things break, things are dirty. Um, it has, it has, you know, it's relying on somewhat relevant technology right now. Um, as compared to something like Star Trek or Star Wars, where they have, you know, light speed travel has been a thing for hundreds of years. You have lightsabers, you have, um, you know, Star Trek, you have replicators, things that just can just make things out of nothing. It's very not related to any sort of, it's not grounded, it's not related to any sort of technology that we have right now. It's many, many, many years in the future, and it's just stuff like Star Wars and Star Trek and uh, Dune do not have any... Uh, sort of relative uh, technology that is based on anything we have right now. So that's those are the kind of two different uh, schools of thought when you're talking about sci-fi. Um, so the Expanse is very much hard sci-fi. It's got they're talking about uh, specifically like Epstein drives, where a guy in you know 200 years in the future will make a drive that makes it so you are traveling at close to light speed and traveling at, at speeds fast enough so you can make um, travel between the planets somewhat uh, uh, possible when you're talking about, you know, right now it takes months and months to get from here to Mars. They're saying in the future it will only take weeks. So it's very much uh, more habitable, more um, 
much more physically possible to travel between the planets in the future because of the the Epstein drive, which was unfortunately named. I wouldn't have named it that, <laughs> considering uh, Jeffrey Epstein and all the things involved there. But anyways, the uh, so The Expanse, I've, I've caught up to the books. I'm all caught up with the books. I read book eight. Uh, book eight, Team is Wrath. Uh, Leviathan the Fall is coming out this, later this year. Um, and I am on season four. I'm about in the fourth episode of season four. Uh, it is one of the best shows I've seen on TV uh, dealing with sci-fi in a very long time. Um, so it stars, you have uh, Stephen Strait as James Holden, Jim Holden, basically the main protagonist of the Expanse books in the series, the TV series. Uh, you have Wes Chatham as Amos Burton, his uh, the muscle and the sort of gunner, gunnery guy of the ship, of the other of Rosanate. Uh, you have his girlfriend, uh, Naomi Nagata, played by Dominique Tipper. Uh, then you have uh, Cass Anvar, Cass, Cass Anvar, Cass Anvar, uh, playing Alex Kamal, who is the pilot of the Rosanate. Um, you have some really great characters that I love from the books. Uh, Christian Avasadra, played by Shodren Ad. Adgad Shalu. Sounds like that, maybe, hopefully. <laughs> so I have some uh, other actors that are uh, more famous than others. Uh, Thomas Jane plays Joe Miller. Thomas Jane played uh, The Punisher in two, two movies, I believe. Uh, also in The Mist. Also played uh, Mickey Mantle in 61. Uh, you have some guest stars in this series. You have David Straithand playing Commander Khalees Ashford. Uh, you have Bern Gorman playing Adolf Smurti. He's in the current season that I'm watching right now. Uh, you have Jared Harris playing Anderson Dawes. So there's a few people uh, in this show that pop up that are uh, notable actors. Um, very, very good show. Uh, production value is, is, is very, very well done. Uh, Amazon bought this a few years ago and putting it, it put the sheen on the whole show. I have a HDR uh, 4K television and it uses all of that. Uses all of, all of that tech very well. Uh, but uh, so the show overall and the book series overall uh, is really um, the overall themes of the book and the show are about the ways in which military power and who wields it and whose boot is on whose neck, how it can drastically change the the dynamic of any civilization. At the start of the series, uh, you have Earth and Mars. They have equal majority of capital, of, of funds, of money, equal, uh, almost equal shares of the military power and influence over the outer colonies. And the outer colonies have sort of joined together in this loose affiliation called the OPA, the Outer Planetary Alliance. Um, this, this, and the last book I've read, let me just go through the Wikipedia uh, entry here for the series overall. Uh, the Expanse is set in the future in which humanity has colonized much of the solar system, but does not yet have interstellar travel. Travel between the vast distances between planets of the solar, solar system has been made possible with the Epstein Drive, which I already talked about. Though the G-forces exerted during acceleration is debilitating without the use of special drugs. In the asteroid belt and beyond, tensions are rising between Earth's nations, United Nations, Mars, and the other planets, the OPA. The residents of the outer planets have developed a Creole language due to their physical isolation to Earth and Mars. The series initially takes place in the solar system using many real locations such as Ceres and Eros in the asteroid belt, including several moons of Jupiter, with Ganymede and Europa being the most developed. And small science bases are thus far out as Phoebe around Saturn and Titania around Uranus as well as established domed settlements on Mars and the Moon. So that's about the, the overall uh, plot points of the series. One more thing about this about the series and books overall. I was reading uh, the newest one, Precipitous, or the second, the second newest one, uh, Precipitous Rising, which is the eighth book, yeah, the seventh book in the series. Uh, it must have been tough reading it because it came out around the time of the 2016 elections with Donald Trump winning that election. It must have been tough reading it because the the book, um, the, the main thrust of the book is a totalitarian government takes over the entire solar system. Um, led by, it was a, uh, led by the uh, Winston Duarte. He led the Laconian Empire, which um, 
it was used uh, to, uh, alien technology to outfit their already highly advanced uh, military technology. Um, as the series progresses, the scale of power shifts to the Free Navy, led by Marcos Ineros, later to the Laconian Empire, led by Winston Duarte. Uh, every time, the usurper being whoever has the biggest, most organized, and most advanced stick, or weapons, or guns, or whatever you want to call them. Uh, at the same time, there's a dead alien technology that is slowly coming back online, and Holden, the main antagonist of the show, has to figure out who killed its maker. So there's a lot a lot of stuff going on in this book and TV series all at once. It's a very good, very, very good show. Um, highly, highly recommended. It's now streaming on Amazon Prime. Another show, moving on to another show I've been very much enjoying. Uh, the series finale is tomorrow night. So I might talk about that after the premiere. Uh, Mayor of Easttown, M-A-R-E of Easttown. I know every every time I say it, it sounds like I'm saying mayor of Easttown, which is actually mare, mare, like, like a horse of Easttown. Uh, this show is one of the best crime dramas I have seen in a very, very long time. Uh, it has a stellar cast led by Kate Winslet, who is, who is acting her metaphorical balls off. Um, the top level, high level synopsis of the show is that it is about a murder case gone cold, a one year uh, murder case gone cold, and then two girls go missing during the show itself. Uh, a year later, and lead detective Mayor Sheehan's 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 attempt to solve the case. Um, the, but the show is actually the theme of the show. One of the major themes of the show is about uh, the show is very much interested in exploring the ways in which people and communities are forced to come together to keep an eye on each other, due in part to a systemic failings at every level of government and law enforcement when it comes to addressing ongoing pandemics such as the opioid crisis. Um, a, lot, a lot of allusions to uh, uh, mental illness and people um, addicted to methamphetamines and uh, opioids and things like that. So very, very good show. Very well shot, very well acted. Highly recommend Mayor of Easttown. Uh, moving on. Got the Mitchells vs. the Machines. This came out about three weeks ago. Would love to talk to some people about this as well. This is one of the best uh, show or sorry movies I've seen in a very very long time. Um, the 2021 uh, American computer animated science fiction comedy film produced by Sony Pictures Animation. The film was directed by Mike Rianda in his feature directorial debut. Co-directed by Jeff Rowe and written by Rianda and Rowe, with Phil Lord and Christopher Miller and Kurt Ulbrich serving as producers. And if those names sound familiar, it's because they are the writers and directors of such things as the Lego movies, uh, the series of those. Um, they also directed uh, or helped help direct uh, Into the Spider-Verse. So Mitchell vs. the Machines very much has that sort of whimsy and fast-paced uh, jokes a minute sort of thing, sort of deal. Um, very much reminds me of the movies from the 70s and 80s, the Zucker Brothers movies, uh, Airplane, Top Secret, and the Naked Gun films. Uh, this movie is directed by Mike Rianda, stars Abby Jacobson as Katie, Danny McBride as the father, Rick, Maya Rudolph as the mother, Linda, uh, Mike Rianda, the, the director and writer of this movie, uh, voiced Aaron, the Furbies, the talking dog, and the Wi-Fi enthusiast. Uh, this also stars Eric Andre as Mark. Uh, you have Olivia Coleman, love her, as Pal, P-A-L, the voice of Pal. Fred Emerson as Deborah 5000. You have Chrissy Teigen and John Legend. Uh, Blake Griffin is Pal Max Prime. Conan O'Brien stars as Glaxon 5000. Uh, I really, really love this movie. It has a lot of heart, too. It's about the 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 daughter trying to, or the daughter and the father trying to reconnect. Uh, she's very much her own person and likes to be on her own and shoots a lot of uh, low-budget uh, short films and movies. Um, and it's very much about that. It's trying to, father and daughter trying to connect, trying to connect at the end there. Uh, really, really lovely little movie. Uh, one of my favorites so far this year. Uh, moving on to something that wasn't one of my favorite things this year was Love, Death, and Robots Season 2. Uh, this is a massive, massive drop-off in quality from the first season. So what I'll do is just talk a little bit about the uh, the stuff I liked about Season 1 and uh, <clears throat> compare it to Season 2 and just, just explain why I felt that it fell off so hard. 
Um, the first episode of the first season, Sony's Edge, it's about a um, underground world of beastie fights. Um, and it turns out, you know, a lot of a lot of the series, a lot of the first series had really great, really great twists. I don't think a story should have to rely on its twists to be a good, compelling story. Um, but a lot of these uh, twists are are what make the, the the episode so great in and of itself. Um, Sony's Edge. It turns out the the little girl was the the monster all along. She, you think you think throughout the the episode that she is controlling the monster, but it ends up the monster is actually controlling her. Um, you have three robots, which was a, a fine one. Uh, the witness is one of my favorite ones from the first season, where uh, a woman sees a brutal murder across the streets, uh, rear uh, rear window style, and it turns out that she is the one actually being murdered. It sort of loops in on itself at the end. There, that was very good. Um, the uh, fourth episode, Suits, I will uh, quote a article I found here about this uh, series overall. Uh, Suits is assembled like one of the outfitted rigs that its main character takes into battle. Take a rural farm landscape, a 90s action thriller spirit, and a portal to another dimension. And when you put them all together, you get one of the collection's most purely entertaining shorts. Even in the compressed time frame and with so much action to get through, the fact that Frank Balson and the Blur Studios team find quick, efficient ways to differentiate the, character, the members of this ad hoc squadron and tap into a symmetry for the loved ones that they leave behind is no easy feat. It's also one of the rare installments in this collection to hit the title trifecta three different, in three different meaningful ways all up to the final reframing parting shot. So that was a very good way of saying that, good way of putting that. Um, episode five was Sucker of Souls. Don't actually remember that one. They got a 6.5 on IMDb, so that's probably why. Um, when the Yogurt Took Over. This is a really great one. I remember liking this one a lot. Um, had very much of a uh, um, spaghetti and the meatballs. What was that, um, what was that movie? Uh, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Very much reminiscent of the uh, Mitchells versus the Machine sort of theme I was talking about just a second ago. Um, Beyond the Aquila Rift is another one. is uh, one of the most um, hard-hitting ones. Left a uh, huge mark on me when I finished that one. Um, so again, I'll quote this article here written on IndieWire by Steve Green. Another filmmaker, another filmmaking team with work appearing in both seasons, Leon Briel. Dominique Boudin, Boyden, Remy Kostra, and Maxim Leroux certainly, certainly leave an impression with their first entry. What begins as a sensual post-space hibernation encounter clues the audience into the idea that things on board this ship might not be as they seem. The story works on a reconnecting with an old flame level that it's all the more jarring when some fantasy alarm bells really start going off. To the extent that a handful of frames can define an entire piece of work, any short with the ending reveal here has to be near the top of this list. It's as easy for any viewer to give the same how-bad-can-it-really-be reaction that Tom has when he asks to see the real interior of the ship. But that red-tangled monstrosity, complete with the lifeless corpses of the rest of Tom's crew, is certainly the most haunting single image in the entire show's run so far. And I would, I would highly uh, agree with that, uh, with that sentiment there. Yeah, just oof. If you haven't seen it, spoilers for this episode and for this whole everything in the show, everything for everything I've been talking about here. But uh, he was traveling in deep, deep space, and there's apparently some sort of um, arachnid-type creature that snares any sort of uh, ship that gets too close to it in its web. The horrifying reveal at the end. Absolutely terrifying. Uh, so moving on to, what do we got here? Good Hunting. I love that one. Uh, it's about the son of a spirit hunter. Forges a bond with a shape-shifting Huli Jing. Uh, very, very good one. Um, the Dump was number nine. Got a 6.3. I remember liking that one a lot. It was about Ugly Dave car calls the garbage dump home, and he's not about to let some silly city slicker take it away from him. So that was about, uh, so I think, a, an expect uh, city inspector comes to the, to the the to the dump, and there was some sort of uh, autonomous um, machine creature living in his dump that kills the kills the city inspector. 
Shapeshifters, number 10, uh, deep in Afghanistan, two Marines with supernatural powers face a threat from one of their own kind, which was a fantastic one. I love that one. Uh, Helping Hand was a very um, Outer Limits, Twilight Zone-y sort of twist um, storyline here. Uh, stranded in orbit, an astronaut must choose between life and limb before oxygen runs out. So what happens here is she, uh, this astronaut is on the outside of her ship doing some repair work. And I think she gets hit by something or something spooks her, but somehow she gets... Um, she gets separated from her ship, no lifeline or anything, so she's she doesn't have any sort of um, oxygen or air left in her suit to sort of push her back to the ship. So she ends up um, freezing her, taking her her hand off, her, her glove off, and freezing her hand, snapping her hand off, and throwing it in the opposite direction that she has to go to get her back to her ship. So that was a extremely upsetting <laughs> episode there. Uh, Fish Knight, they got a 6.4 on here. I, live, I like this one a lot. Uh, after their car breaks down in the desert, two salesmen take a dreamlike voyage to the dawn of time. Very, very ethereal, very uh, dreamlike uh, image, imagery here in this one. I like that one a lot. Um, number 13 is Lucky 13. After their dropship, Lucky 13 loses two crew members. No pilot would fly her, but rookies don't get a choice believe there was a article here written about this one. Let me see here. Written by Steve Green. Lucky 13, he writes here, quote, voiceover, voiceover narration is always a tricky prospect in one of these shorts. Often working from a foundation of short fiction, it's easy to see why these adaptations would want to preserve some of that in the final product. Lucky 13 is brimming with so many other exacting technical achievements that you hardly need those spoken exp explanations to fill in any gaps. There's a care and depth in what Samara Wiley brings her, or her, brings to her pilot character, not to mention Daisuke Suji's too, that elevates Lucky 13 from being pure exercise. It also benefits, benefits from a touch of the metaphysical, bringing in a dash of the unexpected for even inhabitants of this future world filled with planet evacuations and deadly fighter pilot missions. So a lot of these are, and this one included, um, especially in season two, use this sort of uh, very, very high resolution, high, um, high production value um, CGI. If you ever saw anything like um, uh, Final Fantasy Spirits Within, or a lot of the Animatrix uh, shorts used use this sort of, um, they use the Unreal Engine, uh, which has been used for uh, about a de about two decades now. Um, so it's used a lot in uh, making video games, but uh, most recently it's been used um, in the Mandalorian and Westworld productions. Just read, reading from the Wikipedia article, uh, the Unreal Engine has found use in film making in filmmaking to create visual sets that can track with a camera's motion around actors and objects and be rendered in real time to large LED screens and, and atmospheric lighting systems. This allows for real-time composition of shots, immediate editing of the virtual sets as needed, and, and the ability to shoot multiple scenes within a short period by just changing the virtual world behind the actors. That wasn't exactly what I was talking about. Um, a lot of um, a lot of movies and shorts and and, and and animation has been used has been using the Unreal Engine for a very long time, and it's it's sort of a uh, a system in which you can definitely see it when uh, you definitely notice it when it's being used to full effect in a lot of these shorts. And Lucky Thirteen was one of them. Uh, let's see what else we got. Zima Blue. So this is one of my favorites, one of the best overall. I think if you ask if you ask anybody that really loved the series, uh, the first Love Death Robots series, they'll, they'll mention Zima Blue. And I'll quote here again from the article. Uh, With so many of these shorts aiming for a specific level of hyperrealism, seeing one of these shorts embrace a more fluid, stylized animation approach feels like a breath of fresh air. So I'll just stop right there. Um, that's definitely one of the things that was missing from season two was a variety of artistic um, styles. 
Uh, going back to the article, uh, Robert Valley's Art Deco tinged look into the future, also gorgeously realized in season two installment Ice, converges around a single fictional artist of the future. Evolving in a series of murals with increasingly impossible dimensions, the slow reveal of the painter's true identity is the greatest Zima Blue reveal. The ability to transform something so banal into something this contemplative and creatively ambitious marks the best of what Love, Death, and Robots has to offer. All credit is due to Kevin Michael Richardson, who managed to bring a distinct emotional core to Zima himself. One of the best uh, shorts there, one of the best um, just animated shorts I've seen in a very long time. Uh, Zima Blue is incredible. Um, number 15 was Blind Spot, pretty uh, typical um, story there. It's about a gang of robot thieves stage a high speed heist of a heavily armored convoy. Um, that was fine. One of the ones I really, really liked was Ice Age. It's about a young couple who moved into an apartment and finds a lost civilization inside their antique freezer. That was a great one. Um, alternative, alternative Histories was number 17. Want to see Hitler die in a variety of comical, fantastical ways? Now you can. Welcome to Multiversity, which was, uh, it was fine. Got a 6.4 and I think it deserved that. Um, and the final one was The Secret War. Elite units of the Red Army fight an unholy evil deep in the ancient forests, forest of Siberia. So again, I'll allow uh, Steve Green to uh, talk about why he liked this one. So much of the show is dependent on scale. There's the pack the frame approach that can sometimes make the end result feel overstuffed, but overwhelming is absolutely the goal in this short film from Istvav Zorsky and Dijik Pictures. Its survival stripped down to its rarest form, one that also runs through suits and the tall grass, and the other Love, Death, and Robot chapters that feature some kind of zombie-like figure. The Secret War takes just enough time to acknowledge where these ravenous hordes come from. They're a, by they're a byproduct of an act of hubris, a theme applied just as well for many of the Robot stories too. When the, when the Secret War ends against a lush, snow-drenched natural backdrop, it's not with triumph. The final standoff in the epilogue carpet bombing aren't delivered with a sense of that this destruction is especially fulfilling. The short almost feels defeated as Zakhanov. That sense of exhaustion ends up being an effective series counterbalance. So yeah, I, I remember uh, enjoying this one very much. Uh, again, the, what he was just talking about there, the scope and the scale um, of this short was a, uh, a good departure from a lot of these, which take place in sort of cramped quarters. A lot of these take, in, take place in space in, um, in, in very <clears throat> cramped quarters. Um, so it was a very, uh, very, um, very much a welcome change from a lot of the other stories. So that was uh, my uh, look back on season one of um, Love, Death, and Robots. So... Season two, let me just talk about why season two was a massive drop-off uh, from season one. Um, just starting off with the first episode, automated customer service. Uh, the synopsis is, some senior citizens are lucky enough to enjoy their golden years in tomorrow's high-tech assisted living communities. They pursue re relaxation, their every need taken care of, until their robot servants decide to kill them. So just from that synopsis, it's very much a samey sort of mid-tier idea of, you know, robots going to kill us and we got to fight back. All right, cool. Uh, number two is Ice. This is the one referenced in the uh, the first season from Zima Blue um, from the same artistic, artistic uh, guys that made uh, Zima Blue. Uh, Ice is about in a future where many humans are enhanced with extraordinary strength and endurance the quote-unquote unmodded feel left behind. This class conflict drives a rift between two brothers that puts their lives at risk during a dangerous race. Um, I will say this episode had some interesting um, aesthetics to it. Uh, the whales breaching the the ice cover was very interesting of the lake or, or sea, wherever they were at. That was a very interesting look to it. But uh, overall, just, yeah, just, just didn't have that much going for it as opposed to something like Zima Blue. Didn't have a real, you know, overall theme to it. Didn't have anything going on underneath the hood, as they say. Uh, next up, we have episode three, Pop Squad. The synopsis is, in a future where resources are controlled by the rich, 
quote-unquote unregistered offspring or forced or forbidden by the state. Uh, a police officer charged with enforcing population control faces a crisis of conscience. So again, it's that very ropey sort of idea of, you know, the cop, the police, the, the, uh, the state-run police, state-sanctioned violence uh, put on this guy's shoulders, makes him sort of wake up and question why he's doing what he's doing. And that's, um, that's a story you can tell, <laughs> but, uh, telling it in a, in a, in a more interesting way would have, uh, would have benefited this, this show, this story. Um, but I will say I kind of wanted to see more of that story. I think that was part of the, um, part of the reason I didn't like it that much was that it ended too quickly. I feel like, um, that character in that world felt very much lived in and felt really, um, thought out. And I feel like there, there's probably going to be more from this, from the short. I hope so. Cause that, that character and what he went through seemed very interesting to me. Um, so next up we have snow in the desert synopsis is on an arid scorched planet at the edge of the galactic civilization an ageless albino named Snow is hunted by an assortment of hired killers. But after a beautiful stranger named Harold saved, saves his life, she reveals her plans for him. Uh, this was fine. Again, these are these are all sort of fine. They're they're good, not great. Um, no twist. Again, the thing doesn't need a twist to be interesting. But I feel like these are all sort of just straight ahead stories of you know this one's about a guy who just is hunted by some serial killer or uh, assassins and then he has to survive and he does and that's it. <laughs> so not much going on there either. Uh, number five is called in the, the in the, not in the tall grass, just the tall grass. Uh, synopsis is when a train makes an unscheduled stop in the middle of nowhere, a lone stranger is lured into the surrounding fields by ethereal lights but his curiosity may prove deadly when he discovers the hellish source of the illumination. Again, just fine. Just, just, just fine. No, no real th stuff going on underneath the hood. Again, just straight ahead. Guy gets trapped in the, in the field, some, some cornfield and is attacked by some weird things. And the guy, the conductor of the train is like, don't go out there again, boy. There's danger out there. I told you to stay on the train, boy. What you doing out there? Just fine. Just fine. Again, number six. Fine again. All through the house. The synopsis, the synopsis for this episode is, On Christmas Eve, a young girl and her little brother lie awake. When a jingle of bells announces St. Nick's arrival, they sneak downstairs, hoping to catch a glimpse of the mythical gift giver, but find something unexpected. And it was fine. It's just that. That synopsis is that. Number, number seven is Life Hutch. When his ship is damaged in battle, a combat pilot crash lands on a desolate planet. Fortunately, there's an automated shelter on the surface that can take refuge that he can take refuge in until rescue arrives, if he can survive that long. Uh, Mister Mister Steve Green has a uh, has a um, synopsis here. Talks about it here a little bit. Um, let's see what he says because I, I, I again wasn't impressed by this very much. Uh, Michael B. Jordan starring in a mangled, st staring, let me try that again. Michael B. Jordan staring at a mangled hand while trying to stay silent, trying to stay silent enough to avoid detection by a sentient killing machine. You don't mean, you don't need much more than that to pull off an effective claustrophobic thriller like this one. Jordan has such an expressive face. It's a testament to the Blur team, led by director Alex Beatty, that they're able to translate that to this animated pressure cooker, featuring a downed pilot trying to survive the very building meant to keep him alive. But it's more than just a panic room in space, fitting given the show's Fincher backing. Uh, there's a sense of spatial geography here that, when combined with some sound trickery and an unexpected cat joke, really sell this as a focused battle of wits. It's a bit of a misleading statement with how much detail there is still inside what could be what could easily be a dim, featureless interior. But Life Hutch is one of the prime examples that less can absolutely be more in the world of love, death, and robots. It was fine. It was fine. It was good, not great. Again, uh, if you just look at um, some screen stills of this 
of this episode is exceptionally well animated. We're start, we're, it's it's not even in that uncanny valley. Uncanny valley meaning it sort of looks almost lifelike, but not quite. There's something just quite off that your eye can tell, but your brain can't quite compute what it is that's off, off about it. Um, just, the, the, again, going back to the animation of stuff like um, the Animatrix back in the day, back in 99-2000, that stuff looked cutting edge, and I'm, I'm guessing if we went back and watched some of that, it wouldn't look as cutting edge, but uh, this does right now, and it looks incredible. The, the animation in this is absolutely incredible. I, I assume some people might even look at it and say, that's that's real life. No, that's not animated, that's real life. But... Um, you know, good good animation can only take you so far. You also need a compelling story, and unfortunately, that wasn't here. <clears throat> so let's see how many left. That was the second to last one. The last one was called the Drowned Giant. The synopsis is when two hundred when a two hundred foot tall naked body washes ashore outside a small fishing village. Crowds gather to witness the spectacle. A local scientist documents the the Leviathan's surrender to nature. So this is another one that um, Steve Green uh, highlighted here. So let me read what he says. Uh, quote, That season two of Love, Death, and the Robots ends with a sigh and not an explosion is a welcome twist. That it comes in a short directed by Miller is doubly surprising. All the cacophony of twisting naked bodies and slit throats and mechanized life forms culminates in a sober existential response to a single oddity. A mammoth, barn-sized human washes up on the shores of a coastal town. Tapping into J.G. Ballard's story, the drowned giant forges its own visual ideas while still feeling more literary than previous than pretty much any of the others that come before it. As we pointed out in our Season 2 review, it's also striking in how it represents a distinct idea of death within the series. It's one that doesn't come at the end of an enemy's weapon. It just happens. Swapping out instantaneous annihilation for the tragedy of slow decay makes for Love, Death, and Robots' most profound idea. Miller can't help but squeeze in one gag near the end that would be right at home in a Deadpool movie. But overall, this stands as proof that for the show, one of its most notable directors and the medium overall, cutting away some of the flashy thrills frills can reveal some beautiful patient storytelling underneath and uh again this was this was fine this was um visually made obviously with the unreal engine very realistic looking visuals with the body and other people surrounding it and the water and the sand around it very very uh striking visuals again uh with this with this episode but just overall just like what is what is this about i think i feel like other episodes in the first season had things had ideas percolating underneath the storyline um just different ideas uh, going on uh behind the scenes and this season was completely lacking almost almost completely lacking of any sort of deep interesting retrospective ideas about life or death or robots so that was unfortunate um but uh yeah i will be still uh, holding on hope that maybe season three uh, brings it back to the high quality bar that was season one. So with that, let's move on to Hacks. Uh, just watched episode six of this. I believe it's a nine or ten episode uh, series starring Gene Smart. Again, from Watchmen, Mayor of Easttown, 24. She plays Depression Kitty in Big Mouth, which Dion probably can speak to better. Uh, Fargo season two and a myriad of other roles uh, plays Deborah Vance in this show a washed up not a washed up comedian but a uh, bitter older comedian she's still working at the Las Vegas strip uh, she has a res residency there for I believe the uh, last 20 years uh, so, so stars Anna Einberger who is the daughter of comedy writer Chad Einberger Einbinder sorry Einbinder not Einberger and original Saturday Night Life cast member, Lorraine Newman. Lorraine Newman! Also stars Christopher McDonald, Shooter McGavin from Happy Gilmore, and Caitlin Olsen, Caitlin Olsen from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Uh, the synopsis is, it explores a dark mentorship that forms between Deborah Vance, a legendary Las Vegas comedian, and an entitled outcast 25-year-old comedy writer. This is a fantastic show. I love this show. Um, very, very smart writing, 
Um, love the, I love the relationship between Gene Smart and um, Einberger. I would say Einberger's Einbinder. Um, you, you expect this to be the sort of thing where Gene Smart is playing the older commodity uh, comedian and the younger, uh, uh, the younger comedian um, uh, Ava uh, is going to come in here and uh, you know smooth off the the rough edges. Te- teach her what love is about. Love, teach her to love again. You know, uh, melt that cold heart of hers. But it's really just them both being dicks to each other for the entire show. Um, and that her just, uh, Deborah learning that, uh, not learning, but uh, understanding that, you know, what, what's funny 40 years ago, maybe isn't so funny now. And, uh, uh, Ava sort of, uh, learning from, from Deborah that there's other, you know, other ways to look at life. So that's, it's a, it's a very interesting show. It's a bit more uh, dramatic at the sixth episode, um yeah very very good show highly recommend hacks on hbo plus moving on getting to the end here watch i finally watched margin call directed by jc shandor who's done uh, other films such as a most violent year all is lost and triple frontier um i have yet to see a most violent year but i uh enjoyed question mark uh triple frontier from 2019 it was the one about uh, which was basically Triple Frontier was basically um, Treasure of the Sierra Madre uh, made modern day and with uh, former special ops, special, special ops, Army, Navy people trying to get money from uh, trying to steal a bunch of money from uh, from a Ecuadorian warlord person, I guess. Anyways, uh, Margical movie stars Kevin Spacey. I know. Uh, Paul Bettany, Jeremy Irons, Zachary Quinto, stacked cast, stacked cast, uh, Penn Badgley, who's in You, the Netflix series You. Uh, let's see, we got Demi Moore, Stanley Tucci, bunch of people in this movie. Great, 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 great movie about the uh, 2008 um, mortgage crisis. The well, the more, more than just the mortgage crisis, the entire when the entire world economy basically crashed in on itself because uh, banks were giving. Uh, home loans to people that couldn't afford them. And so it all came crashing down. Uh, I would highly recommend watching uh, The Big Short to also get a uh, good idea of what happened in 2008, 2009. Um, So very, very good. I love movies that are just about guys sitting around a table, acting their balls off across from each other. And that's exactly what this is. Um, This has Jeremy Irons, Paul Bettany, uh, Paul Bettany, most people know from WandaVision. He's playing Vision in the uh, the Marvel movies now. Uh, Jeremy Irons, Zachary Quinto. Uh, basically, uh, Zachary Quinto has to play the guy to explain to uh, Jeremy Irons' character uh, exactly what happened. One of the best uh, moments in films in the past like 10 to 15 years is when uh, Jeremy Irons just said, uh, just these silent looks, <laughs> just these looks to him, to uh, to Zachary Quinto's character, just like, what, what are you telling me? This company is bankrupt. This company is bankrupt. That sultry, deep British voice that uh, Jeremy Irons has. Excuse me, sir, are you telling me this company is bankrupt? Incredible movie, incredible, incredible acting. I love it. Uh, so it's margin call. Uh, I guess you can get that on Amazon, Amazon Prime, rent that over there. Uh, I also checked out The Writer from 2017, one of Chloe Zhao's first films, um, Academy Award winner Chloe Zhao, who will be directing The Eternals coming out this year that a trailer just dropped this week. But uh, The Writer was from 2017. Um, and the synopsis is after suffering a near fetal head injury, a young cowboy undertakes a search for a new identity and what it means to be a man in the heartland of America. So this movie is a lot like, uh, Nomadland in the sense that you have people playing themselves. You have non-professional actors playing themselves, which is very interesting because I feel like when you make a, make a documentary or make something that is about that subject about the subject you're, you're, you're shooting, you know, the person doesn't really want to 
you know, get into their subject life and what their their life, you know, what if something traumatically bad happened to them that they wouldn't want to uh to expose that to 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 the world and and have that um have their life and their the events of their life dramatized and put into a light and made and made into a movie and just really um have what's happened to them and their story sort of taken out of context and and made into into entertainment which and that's exactly what she does here which is she takes um the events of this this person's life brady jandro and the other jandros his family um and crafts a narrative around that a, a fictional narrative around an actual event and has them sort of played out played out as actors which is very very interesting um probably not doing it justice but um yeah it's, it's it has pretty stunning uh cinematography the the camera placements and the the framing and the um the blocking of this of these of this movie is incredible um i would highly recommend it just for that just for the visuals so that was um that was the writer from 2017 directed by academy award winner chloe zhao Lastly, I watched, watched another Academy Award-winning uh, movie, The Octopus Teacher, won Best Documentary at the 2021 uh, Academy Awards. This was uh, directed by Pippa Eldrick and James Reed. Uh, the synopsis is, a filmmaker forges an unusual friendship with an octopus living in a South African kelp forest, learning as the animal shares the mysteries of her world. So this... Um, so this filmmaker, Craig Foster, South American uh, documentary filmmaker, naturalist, and founder of the Sea Change Project, um, finds a, a octopus and starts a relationship with it. Uh, fosters, fosters a relationship with this one specific octopus, and I guess it uh, octopi uh, have a very short lifespan, whether it's naturally a short lifespan or because they are uh, taken out by uh, some prey. Um, but he basically films the entire lifespan of this one specific uh, octopus, and it's it's stunning. Stunning cinematography, um, filmed in 4K, I believe, or 8K even, and it looks incredible, as do most nature documentaries, things like Planet Earth and uh, Blue Planet, things like that. Looks stunning in 4K and HDR on Netflix. Um, yeah, I would, I would simply just watch it for that. That was my octopus teacher from 2020. It won best documentary at the uh, Academy Awards, and I would highly recommend that. I agree with that. So that is all I've been watching for the past few weeks. Um, we might be ramping up the podcast again in a couple of weeks here with Loki coming out on June 9th. They're now coming out on <clears throat> Wednesdays or Thursdays, uh, late Wednesday night, early Thursday. So the plan is to do another podcast, bring the podcast back in full, um, record it that Saturday, put it out on June 14th. So look forward to that. So with that, I'm Damien, and I will see you next time. Bye-bye.